you enjoyed the channel and our video content and would like to support us, you can do this in a couple of ways. You can sign up to our Patreon site which is a monthly subscription to one of our four tiers, each giving you something different from early access interviews up to exclusive unseen footage. There's also the option of a one-off donation via PayPal which allows you the option to donate an amount of your choice. Both options really help to keep this channel going and to continue putting out regular content for you good folk. So please take a look at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate and I thank you in advance. Thank you and enjoy. So Mike, when did you first become interested in aviation? Well, I pretty much grew up with it. My dad was a pilot. Uh, bit of time in the military and then uh, into uh, civil aviation and I grew up from the minute I can remember. So you were destined for the Air Force? <laughs> uh, I decided on that about year eight at school, so second year of high school, mm -hmm. um, and pretty much worked the rest of school through to achieve that outcome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, subjects, yeah. sport, lawlessness. Yeah, so what year did you actually join the Air Force, and can you talk us through some of the initial aircraft you started training on? 1987, got the phone call on my birthday, believe it or not, oh. so uh, my 19th birthday, can you start in 10 days, <laughs> or 11, <laughs> you bet, <laughs> so that was the last bit of university work I did after being <laughs> six months at uni, straight in the Air Force, three months of uh, officer training, and then on to the CT4 air trainer, where we uh, did a few flights before Christmas, had our break, and then finished off our 60 hours to our, I think it was our basic handling tests on that that graduated us uh, onto the Mackie. We came over to Perth for uh, for our jet training after that. Retired now. I think just about everything offline is retired. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were going through your jet training, did you know what type of aircraft you wanted to go on to uh, as a frontline uh, pilot? Oh, I wanted to go fast jets from the beginning. It was no no two ways about it. So was the Hornet actually introduced by the time you were going through your um, flying training? Yeah, I actually saw the uh, first display, or the first I saw it was um, when I was in year 11. And I was actually in a state state band that was playing for Charlie and Di down at Princess Pier in Melbourne. And um, didn't know it was going to happen, but had uh, an F-18 aerobatic display. And that was pretty much the first year they'd been flying. So... Uh, <laughs> Had the bug, uh, Hornets actually was my first preference off, off um, pilot's course, uh, but they, uh, and, and uh, it turned out into F-111s a little bit later on, but um, uh, just always wanted to fly jets. So how did you feel when you actually got that call or um, email, I wouldn't mean email at the time, but uh, when you, someone said you got selected for F-111s, how did you personally feel? Oh look, we we, we graduated uh, when we had we had our postings uh, at the end of pilot's course, and and uh, when they announced it, it was just uh, yeah, felt off the moon. But to be honest, you know, didn't realise actually the hard work only just started at that point. Um, pilot's course was actually relatively easy compared to the next twelve months or so. <laughs> <laughs> so, what were your first initial thoughts of the F one eleven? Overwhelming, really. Uh, you know, I remember my first flight and, um, you know, it was just, um, it was just a beast really. And, and you just didn't, you, you know, 
overwhelmed about how you'd actually get to grips with with uh, keeping up with it and the speed and everything. I'd actually had a had a flight in an F eighteen uh, at that point, you know, so sort of been reasonably fast, a bit faster than the Mackie went, but um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's a big aeroplane. It, it's a you know, it's a fifty ton aeroplane. Does Mac two first flight? You get it up, take it out, and go and do some aerobatics and go and do some handling. It's it's a bit of a beast and. Certainly getting back in the circuit and doing an instrument approach is pretty challenging when you're starting out, you know, even though you're fairly well skilled on the Mackie at that, you know, uh, at that point, the training had been pretty good. The, uh, you know, it's a big leap going from 300 knots to 480 knots for, you know, doing your first low nav visual map with a map is a big jump. Yeah, I can imagine. And we're going to get onto that in a bit, but let's go back a bit. So what was the, the original uh, design of the F-111 for the RAAF? Well, it was supposed to be the uh, you know strategic uh, fighter bomber strike aircraft, long range. Um, I think the book behind me I've got is uh, it lays out its actual requirements and what the uh, Air Force wanted it for. Uh, obviously, they really did want, want a long range aircraft because we're fairly isolated here with a big... Uh, a sea gap around the country so it basically ticked the boxes and you know they ordered it fairly early on it took a, took a while to be delivered so actually by the time i uh started flying it really had only been around for about 16 years so so relatively new i suppose for the air force because it wasn't there didn't you get phantoms beforehand to kind of fill that gap <laughs> Yeah, they, they had them for about two years, I believe. So that was mm. in the uh, 71 to 73, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I was only five then, so. <laughs> <laughs> so what models did the RAAF get? Because um, I think you had the big wing one, didn't you? Yeah, all ours ended up either being or modified into the to the long wing. So the C model was, was long wing, mm-hmm. the long wing version. And the FB-111s that the Strategic Air Command had for the nuclear bombers, they were long wing, and then we ended up getting getting them later on, which I had the pleasure of flying <laughs> for the uh, for a little while there. <laughs> uh, and I believe that helped out with a little bit with range and perhaps payload as well. And were the aircraft uh, modified for the RWF, or was it just a standard US Air Force coming over to you guys? Uh, no, the C models were the RWAF version. And they had some, you know, some perhaps a bit from a couple of different versions. They had the big brake so we could, uh, you know, land on fairly short distances. Um, once I landed in Ambly and pulled off in about the first, you know, 2,000 feet of the runway just for, just to try it. <laughs> got in trouble for that. <laughs> I don't think you could do that in an F model at Lake and Heath. No, no, definitely not. So can you talk us through some of your ground training? Because, yeah, as you said before, it must have been an absolute massive leap coming from the basic aircraft. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, the ground training is, um, you know, standard probably uh, four to five weeks or so on the on the F-111, just doing systems and um, performance, um, standard sort of conversion type, uh, type syllabus there, a lot of exams. Had to get 100% and quite a few sort of word perfect, you know, the ones that mattered. Uh, the rest wasn't wasn't too bad. There were some things that were hard to understand, like the automatic flight control system and, you know, those sort of advanced concepts, which, you know, the Mackie certainly didn't have, but probably similar to, you know, it was a lead, 
it sort of led the way into those those systems on aircraft, you know, to the point where, you know, later on I've flown some civil aircraft that basically have the same system. Oh. The F-111 pretty started it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then we had, yeah, there was a lot of lot of differences, inertial nav system and terrain following radar, a lot, lot of that to, to get through. Mm-hmm. And we had probably, uh, you know, about five, maybe it wasn't even that long, about a month of ground school and then we started flying. And was all the ground training in-house or did you have any of the American guys come over to help teach? Oh, no, it was all in-house and I think all of our instructors at the time were all, all RAF guys. The exchange exchange uh, pilots and navs were either at, were generally at one squadron at the, at the time, so they were doing all the operational stuff mm-hmm. and the, the uh, instructors were all, all Australians. And when you're going through your ground training, did, was it separate for NABs and pilots or were you all kind of interlinked or was it they go one route and you go the other? No, they were, we were all a team, team together. So we, we did all our ground, ground training together. We did a lot of our flight preparation together. We worked together as a team, team throughout. And really it's the only way you can get through the course. It's just too much work otherwise. You know, especially with doing strike missions where you're running multiple targets, you're making maps up, and it's pretty much the old, you know, hand-drawn, getting all things like safety altitudes all sorted out because we're going to go and do a lot of this at night or IMC, and, uh, you know, that you have to get things right, and um, we did share that around. So we, we got uh, split them up and worked as a team to get through that, gave each other a lot of support. Brilliant stuff. And as you mentioned before, but I want to hear about your first flight. What was that like in the F-111? Oh, oh, just, you know, just taking off and so the afterburner and trying to get, and you're in the left seat the first time and the instructor's in the right. My instructor was uh, Trevor Taylor, who had done the Bicentennial Air Show uh, aerobatic display that nice. people had seen fairly uh, uh, back in the late 80s, 1988. Um but yeah, you just got, you got to do it from the start. And we've done simulators and things. So you're getting your hands and feet in the right places and putting the flaps up and the gear up. But then there's the extra wing sweep, which... <laughs> we'll certainly get onto that, Mike. <laughs> it was all manual. So let's talk about your flying training. What sort of like sorties would you be conducting in this initial basic uh, flying stage in the F-111? Um, early on, it was uh, just general flying so uh, we get out the effects of controls and seeing what you know things like the wing sweep do too and then we could actually turn the flight control computers off and go mm-hmm. back into the basic modes and later on we had to learn how to you know take off or to land and do to uh certainly do overshoots i don't think we did touch and goes for for uh with the flight control computers off um and uh being an analog analog system at that point it did fail if fail sometimes so you know you needed to be able to to do that certainly you might lose like a pitch channel or a roll channel um yeah it's quite i probably remember more when i was instructing later on about doing that sort of stuff with students because i did a little bit did it more often and probably had a little bit better understanding but you know the effects of like wing sweep on on roll so 400 knots have the wings forward do a 360 degree roll and see what the roll rate is and sweep the wings all the way back and it's about double mm. <laughs> you know it's um that's the sort of thing we did in the beginning we did all our instrument approaches tacans ILSs. um at that time that was the first time time we'd done instrument landing systems because the trainers didn't have them 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we could actually generate our own approach off the radar. So the navigator, there was a place at Ambly, the radar reflected next to the uh, runway, the nav would find that on the radar. Oh. And it would generate a, a sort of a self-generated ILS for us that, that we could fly down to about 500 feet. So. And yeah, like, how did you find the wing sweep? Did it take a bit of getting used to being manual or was there any times where you're like, oh, crap, the wing's, wing's in the wrong position uh, oh, yeah. like that? It's an, ex- it's an extra control, you know. You've got a cup, you know. The stick's pretty much the standard. The uh, the power's, are, again, a bit different because, you know, you've got uh, idle to military power and then you push them up a bit more and you're in afterburner and W thrust, you know. <laughs> so you've got that controlling that and then remembering to sweep the wings there are some cues at the lower wing sweeps or the forward wing sweeps you do get a uh, like a uh, VE bar come up on the on the airspeed indicator to remind you to pull the wings back <laughs> when you get them all the way back it disappears and you never see that again and I've <laughs> never been fun worry about that yeah so what norm what wing would you normally fly around in because i know like the tornadoes uh would normally 45 wing what would you be in the f-111 yeah that's basically we used to use a uh, 44 wing for for around the traps it, it meant that the spoilers on we had uh, two pairs of spoilers on the wings so they were they were locked out the further you, you got back i think at 45 degrees that's actually where the first pair of spoilers would be locked down so as they get into the fuselage so we use 44 a lot for most most of our sort of low level crews um <laughs> running in targets maybe pulling back the faster faster we went as we approached mac one and you know back at 72 by the time you sort of hit the number so when you were going through your training would you fly clean or would you have tanks and you know maybe dummy weapons on no uh, tanks were only generally used going across to uh Across to the US, I certainly did a few times with that. Um, we pretty much had uh, the practice bomb carrier on most of the time. Sometimes we'd be clean. If we wanted to go and do a high Mac run, Mac 2 run, we'd probably clean it up and not have anything on. Uh, a lot of the weapons, and I can't remember this, I can't remember the Sioux carrier limit, which of the Sioux was the practice bomb carrier, but. Um, you know, it was it was a bit limit limiting. Certainly, with you, if you had the had the practice bombs on, mm-hmm. you know they 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 were limited. Especially the hydrants. I've got a good story about that one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely get onto that. And um, yeah, so actually, just backing up that because if you didn't use the tanks, what was the normal sortie time with you know maybe let's say yeah clean maybe no uh, bombs or anything like that on? Yeah, about about two and a half hours. Wow. We had thirty three thousand fuel in, on board, so. We were burning at about uh, twelve thousand pounds an hour at four eighty knots on the deck, so we we had about two and a half hours in the tank if we didn't use too much afterburner. So, <laughs> That's a big if. <laughs> if you put the burners in and left them, you didn't have a lot of fuel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's talk about TFR. Obviously, the F one eleven is famous for that. Um, did you fly it often, and how did you feel about the the system? Yeah, it's uh, well in the in the course we we after we did our instrument rating we went into the day day TFR and sort of attack phase of, of the course where we flew around using and learning how to use the train following radar. Um, it's a pretty automated system, so basically once you've done all the checks and you plug it in, say you start from fifteen thousand feet, turn the auto TF switch on and it pitches down to uh, about. 10 degrees, no, 8 degrees nose down, and it 
descends down, down at about 10,000 feet a minute until mm. it hits 5,000 feet where the radar altimeter locked on. And then it pitched down a bit more to, to about 10, 10 degrees nose down. It was doing 12,000 feet a minute rate of descent mm. and until it started, um, started the level off uh, phase to whatever set clearance. Now, when I got there because of unfortunately some uh, ac an accident not that long before I joined, they'd raised it to a thousand feet initially. So we let we generally we leveled off at a thousand feet initially, and then we stepped it down to four hundred feet was our standard training at that point, just to give us a bit more time if something went wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, there were times though we went down to the full capability of two hundred feet in hard right. That must have been quite terrifying. Was there a sit? So were you literally hands off, or were you? Did you have your hand near the stick? You just had your hand on the stick, and because there's a there's a paddle switch that um, you know I've seen it recently on Top Gun and the Hornet, where the paddle switch. I oh, guess that's yeah. the G uh, override on the on the Hornet, but that was it. That was our disconnect the TFRs from the flight controls. So if something went wrong, you could just just paddle and you could pull up. Was was it a reliable was, system though? Yeah, pretty pretty reliable. You know, you just kept an eye on it. You, with the pilot, we had our had our radar scope, which uh, only looked you could only see a, a few miles ahead, and most of the screen was taken up in the last one mile. So as things wanted to pull up, that was about in 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 the, the midpoint of the uh, radar screen. But the navs would be looking on the attack radar, and they'd be talking to us. And telling us if there was uh, nothing beyond 10 miles meant that they had a radar shadow beyond 10 miles and they would count that in and so once they got to about nothing beyond one that's where we want to see a response to pull up over over whatever was in front of us mm -hmm. um out of all my years there was only a couple of times where i had a feeling something something wasn't right so um and in those occasions it's a matter of you know, acting first and asking questions later because you know they were, they were IMC or night. I can think of a couple of times, and it was just literally get on that paddle switch, wings level, and pull up. And, you know, or G yeah. back up, get to altitude, sort it out afterwards. And let's talk about the cockpit. It's very unique for a fighter side by side. Um, how did you feel about that? Did it was it a benefit for the F one eleven and the mission it was designed for? Yeah, it's it's got pros and cons. Um, you know the pros is as a crew it helps you work as a team you know quite closely you can see what you know how busy your, your you know your nav is or vice versa um you you can see if they're actually doing things that you expect them to do at certain times mm -hmm. um conversely they're in the way both of us you know for lookout so lookout's a big thing in the fast jet oh yeah fast jet world and you know i could see reasonably a fair way back on my left side but in my right there's someone sitting right there so <laughs> you do have to rely on them um looking out and unfortunately with you know using the radar and and paytac sometimes you know their heads down looking at things and they can't always look look out and mm -hmm. keep an eye out for the, all the bad guys trying to trying to find you and they love trying to find us <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine yeah so let's talk about some of the strengths and weaknesses of the F-111 and uh, yeah, what do you think, it, yeah, what did it do best? Because I would always see the F-111 as low and fast. That would be my biggest strength for the aircraft, surely. Oh, absolutely. Just, you know, get down low and you could go fast and you could out outrun pretty much everything. You know, I've been uh, 
um, there was a there was an exercise I did where we were against F-15s when they got AMRAMs. I didn't even get shot. Now they kept me away from the target on time some, sometimes, mm-hmm. but we had the speed and the endurance to outrun them. And one one occasion, you know, there was just all our escort. They were all kill removed, and it was just me and my my wingman, and we and we avoided you know four F-15s with AMRAM. The only problem is that they, and we could have kept going. The only thing is that you do run out of time if you have a time on target. So. Uh, yeah. So what um, could the, or what did you see on the deck with the F one eleven speed wise? What What did I see? Oh, just pretty much just a bit over supersonic. Mm-hmm. You know, it was most of the time we were over land, and we weren't we weren't supposed to be uh, supersonic over land. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> there was a habit, even flying around the Northern Territory, you would just about be egressing off target. The aircraft's clean. You can, you know, there's no restrictions on it. I can guarantee you'll fly over this one station within 50 miles. <laughs> <laughs> so was the case. <laughs> Every time, just about. Um, and, uh, you know, but there were times when we did. Uh, there were memorable time. I was flying on the, I was on the wing of... Uh, one of, uh, of the RAF exchange pilot, Tim Anderson. And we were egressing off uh, off QB Point in the uh, Philippines after we we bombed the runway. And the thing about Cope Thunder is we were, were not supposed to go supersonic, but if we were doing 0.95, it was too slow. So we we're pretty much always in that range where right. about one, you know, 1.05, oh, I'm a bit fast, we'll pull it back a little bit. Next thing you see, 0.95, we'll go, go a bit quicker. <laughs> and and uh, all I could see on Timo's aircraft was the nose sticking out and a triangle of of, of cloud. Wow. And, you know, then that was just smoking north out of, uh, out of Subic. <laughs> what and, a sight. Um, and then, yeah, there were some F-16s that were, they'd egressed ahead of us and we overtook them. They were probably doing about 400 knots and we would have been, yeah, 660. Sort of. oh, that's moving. <laughs> so what was your first um, squadron? And I think, uh, if I'm right in saying, uh, you also got a chance to do DSET with an F-3. Well, uh, yes, I, I sort of did. Um, after we finished our conversion course, we, we stayed at six squadron and we had an operational training flight back then, and we basically, uh, the, the the seven of us flew together with our flight commander, and um, um, we went to Malaysia. Uh, went to Malaysia to IADS exercise out of Butterworth, and I was with uh, a good friend Terry Deeth, and we were maybe the youngest crew round at 21. Both of us 21 at the time. <laughs> Great, you know, we'd, we'd both come out of school together, straight on and off training together, split up for the pilot and nav course, and then back at 76 Squadron. So we, we had this sort of parallel career that came back together. And we were doing this probe down on the eastern side of Malaysia, down to Singapore at about 15,000 feet. Now, we were all pretty canned exercises, so the air defence, they knew where we would be and what time. And we are looking out and maybe, I don't know, I think, Definitely, definitely came from the right side. So I'll have to uh, maybe blame Terry, but he, he called it. And the next thing, this tornado just came over the top. Now, 
I'd only been out Fintro fighter course and doing one one v ones not that long before, so it was like straight in full afterburner, into into max angle of attack straight into him. We ended up in in a flat scissors for about three or four turns, and it seemed to me we were holding our own and staying pretty neutral with with them. But they were pretty experienced guys. They they may have been <laughs> may have been playing with them a bit, but then again, we're probably in the part of the envelope where neither aircraft was particularly great. I think, but. But, uh, so you did but okay. Right. <laughs> after a little while, I thought maybe I'm not supposed to be doing this. I haven't been authorized for any of this. <laughs> so, Mike, let's talk about Corp Thunder. I'm fascinated about this. Uh, can you tell us what the exercise is about and why it's based in the Philippines? Yeah, well, it was um, it was the biggest exercise, and I think I think uh, Clark was the biggest USAF base outside of the US at the time. Um, and so Cope Thunder was the, was the red flag equivalent for the Pacific. And uh, compared to red flag, they're actually bigger missions. I think we had 70 aircraft missions mm. when I was there. Um, and again, I'd only just come out of training and was been in the squadron less than, you know, one month and we'd do a workup, given the magic tick saying you're mission ready. And uh, we went went off there to the Philippines. I'm going to tell you what, for the first week, I really did. The learning curve was fairly steep. <laughs> it was from, you know, maybe one, maybe two ships, you know, not really that much opposition into, uh, you know, 70 aircraft missions. I was either number two or number four all the time and um, I had some pretty good leads. But my, I learned in the first week, the wingman's job is just to be there. And certainly by week two, I was there. And uh, <laughs> yeah. never let go of the But uh, I had some pretty good crew members. I had uh, one of my navs was um, he'd done an exchange on the uh, Buccaneer, uh, and we were flying around the mountains. I remember just ducking in through these storms, and 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 my lead, someone who who's been mentioned almost uh, <laughs> on your interviews before, but uh, I was hanging off his wing. We we're ducking, weaving, and uh, TC was. Uh, he said, Mickey, I've got the rocks. And I just let him do that. And I just flew in formation. We're down at like 500 knots at, you know, 150, 200 feet, trying to get through this weather, big storms. And at the end, I was still there. So, <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> so how many nations were actually, uh, you know, took part in the exercise? Well, I think it was just, just the US and us on that one. But we had the, uh, we had F-18s, and it was a bit of a mix because they were coming up to doing their um, uh, fighter combat instructor course, I think. And so there were guys from from all our F-18 squadrons and one squadron, we had C-130 and had uh, F-15s and F-16s that come down from Okinawa. Mm -hmm. uh, the F-4Gs may have been doing as well, the wild weasels that were based there in, at Clark. And there were some Marines uh, F-18s over at uh, Subic Bay and Cubie Point flying out of there and I think then the, you know there's some AWACS and and uh, various other aircraft um, you know standards and tankers and support aircraft mm -hmm. out there as well but they were ended up being quite big pushes we'd all go up to the north you know form the wall and it was a big gorilla press on south try and get through the fighter opposition and then into the target in Crow Valley, 
um, which had the ranges were all set up with uh, like airfields and surface air missile sites. They had uh, smoky sands that fired at you and anti-aircraft artillery, like smoky AAA yeah. that, that, that fired at you as well. All the radar would get all our electronic warning systems would, would be uh, chirping away at you. Um, so we were able to use all that. Um, the aim was to get on the target and drop your bombs and then get out. Yeah. Fight your way back north again through the through the through the air defence shield again. Yeah. So probably I I can't remember exactly now, but you know may may have got through unscathed a couple of times. But, <laughs> but the point was to mix it up and to yeah. push through all the fighters and then get through all the uh, the uh, ground defences as well, mm-hmm. and then get through the fighters again on, on the second half. So it was there to mix you, mix it up and. You know, learn learn how to be uh, defensive as well as uh, you know get your attacks in as well. And was it similar to Red Flag, where it was uh, red air, blue air? Did you just play red air all the time, or blue air, or did you mix it up? Uh, we 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 were always we were always red air. We were always attacking. Mm-hmm. But, well, that's that was our job. So mm-hmm. yeah, and... I, I think. I think the fighters did switch around, switch around a bit there, just like they did at Red Flag. Mm-hmm. And did the RWF work similarly to the US Air Force? Was there like many commonalities there? How you worked? Um, yes, we, we did try and be, uh, uh, you know, as similar as as you could be, because we did a lot of exercises, you know, over the years. You know, with units from from the USAF particularly, but you know, on those ones, they'd come to Australia and we'd fly with them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, within the fast jet world in Australia, though, it was we'd all had common training, so we actually had uh, quite good interoperability. I mean, there was one exercise where my wingman, I was mission commander, and that um, my wingman had broken down, and one of the four ship of Hornets broken so i joined in as number four and it was with mm-hmm. guys that i've been with, with for years and you know we knew all the um you know all the no comp procedures as far as you know our signals and i was just filled in as a number four in a four sh- in, a, in a four ship mm-hmm. except the, the other three were f-18s mm-hmm. and how old were you at this point when you were going to corp thunder 21 you're 21 still. Oh my God, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I can't even remember what I was doing at 21. At <laughs> Certainly not that. 21st. Yeah, my, my 21st. Uh, well, from 21 to 22, I sort of did a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. And was that your first experience? I'm guessing they had the big debriefs at the end at Corp Thunder. Yeah, they did. It was all the video video debriefs, and it was Clark to QB, QB to Clark, and um, and they get everybody. Uh, everybody's uh, bomb plots and work out who shot who and it, it didn't have the ACMI ACMI pods that Red Flag did but yeah but uh, you know it was pretty good and you got to see your videos of uh, the surface air missiles and the and the AAA shooting at you and they could see whether you know you were applying any uh, countermeasures and whether the chaff and flares were working whether it was pulling them off mm-hmm. um, yeah another little story there I was flying with the uh, uh, someone who, uh, a great guy. He uh, he's actually one of the El Dorado Canyon navs when he was on exchange, and we rolled into the target. And I we came into the valley, a ten degree dive, and I'd had the train following radar in 
in a mode where it gives you air-to-ground ranging and try and improve the accuracy of the, uh, of the bomb site. And I rolled in and the site just disappeared up out of view and I just had nothing. And now I had six high drags on. And the problem with the high drags, and while they're practice bombs only, they, uh, uh, they had a 550-knot speed limit on them. So I know everybody's going to be running out on the number. It's not... So I'm, I'm in the dive on the target. And I, I think it was the airfield. <laughs> it was, I've got no sight. Well, the pedo probe sticks out in front. And I sort of looked, took a guess, and luckily the high drag, so you can get pretty close. And I just, I just punched all those six six off, pulled up, escaped with the rest of the guys, and then I sweated for the next probably hour or so afterwards, <laughs> find out what what had happened. And then, it was a big relief when they came back and there's a plot going straight through the target. <laughs> so. so, yeah, how, do, how long did uh, Corp Thunder last? Uh, we were there for three weeks, so I had a few days of familiar flying and then two weeks of the exercise. Um, and, uh, yeah, probably flying about three to four times a week. Oh, um, God. Yeah. And was there any downtime yeah. in that? Um. Just the usual on the on the weekends. We we had some time off. Interesting. The first the first Friday night we, well, in fact, might have been the first night we were there. We we went out for dinner off the base. We had a function on the next weekend, and unfortunately, the New People's Army had uh, they shot someone in Subic, mm. an American serviceman then, and uh, so we were confined to base, and the ground crew were staying in hotels off off base. And we were restricted to there. And the next weekend, we went to uh, we were, took a C one thirty. One of our guys or our crews flew us all there to uh, to Subic and QB Point, where we had the weekend there, water skiing and carrying on. Um, may have been the world's biggest party since Vietnam, according to the letters. But... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a twenty one year old, I mean that must be incredible. Flying the F one eleven, and oh god, you lucky, lucky man. 